The first verse in the Dhammapada, a collection of verses of the Buddha, the Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all conditions. The mind is the chief. All conditions are mind-made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, then pain or suffering follows one, just as the wheel follows the hoof of the ox that pulls the cart. In the second verse he goes on to say, if with a pure mind one speaks or acts, then happiness follows one just as a shadow that never leaves one. And with these two verses, the Buddha unequivocally acknowledged that our experience of life is rooted in the mind. We create our experience. And because the mind is a very alive, dynamic continuum, not static, not fixed, there is the possibility of transforming our experience. The transformation that we undertake through the practice of mindfulness is a transformation of consciousness. The actions that we take, the words that we speak, and the reality created by them are rooted in the mind. So what is this pure mind that the Buddha refers to? that is the basis for happiness in our life. It may be easier to recognize if we talk about what the pure mind isn't. The pure mind isn't empty-headedness. It isn't spacey nothingness. It isn't an inert vacuum. It isn't obliviousness. It isn't sleepiness, but the pure mind is the mind that knows clearly. Lucid, precise, clear knowing of the present moment's experience. Sometimes when we use the word, the word pure, purity, we get some connotations of a, a puritanical uh, morality or a prohibition mentality. But we're not talking about or referring to that at all when we talk about the pure mind. We're talking about the mind operating without impediment, without obstruction, without confusion, distraction. 
So what is it that obscures or prevents us from experiencing this pure mind? In the Buddha's understanding, they are called kalesa. Kalesa are those qualities of mind which torment us, which bother us, which oppress us, which make our life difficult to bear. And when the mind is clouded by these conditions, or obscured, we might say, when the purity is not apparent, we suffer. Practically speaking, we experience these clouds, these obstructions, as the distractions of thinking about the past, longing for the future, anticipations, expectations, fear, desire, clinging, aversion, in all of its manifestations, frustration, disappointment, depression, dislike. These conditions torment us. They make us unhappy. When these conditions are present in the mind, they may be subtle, they may be very gross. They act as filters on the clear knowing of the mind. It's like putting on lenses, so that when we put on our lenses, our lens of frustration, whatever it is we're doing, whatever it is we're trying to do, whatever it is we see, it causes us to feel frustrated. The activity, the object, the person, the event is just what it is. It's just, it's just doing its thing. It's being its thing. But because we have on our contacts, lenses of frustration, we feel frustrated. Or if we have on our lenses of uh, desire, what we see, we want. We want to get, we want to have, we want to use, we want to own, we want to possess. The thing in and of itself, the object, the person, the knowledge, the experience, is just what it is. It exists due to its own conditions, but because our mind is clouded, obscured, impure, with this state of desire, we don't see clearly, and we suffer because of it. We experience these obscurations, these obstructions of the mind a lot in the first days of a retreat. And I'm sure we could spend more than a few minutes listing the conditions we've experienced today that have caused us no end of difficulty, frustration, disappointment. 
And we would essentially be listing the classes, the torments of the mind. Categorized, maybe most succinctly, in what are known as the five hindrances. The five conditions of mind which hinder clarity and concentration. They are the familiar sleepiness, sloth and torpor, doubt, restlessness, aversion, and desire in one or another or many of their forms. Tonight I'm going to talk about the hindrances, some of them, and ways that we can identify them, work with them, and use them not as an obstacle to our practice, not as a hindrance or an obstruction to our practice, but as the very foundation upon which our practice develops and deepens. The Buddha said, if we pay attention, if we acknowledge, if we are mindful of these conditions, we will be led to happiness. He didn't say, if you can get rid of all of them, then you can be mindful and then you can be happy. That's not the way it works. It's if we can be mindful of them. And in that is the implicit recognition that the hindrances are going to arise. So we should best get familiar with them and learn as much as we can of how to work with them. Because to persist in denial, avoidance, uh, hopeful anticipation that they won't be there, um, arrogant uh, attachment to the belief that we don't experience them, uh, then we just impede our own progress. We just make our practice more difficult unnecessarily. These states of mind, these hindrances, they are deeply conditioned habits in the mind. We have a habit of responding to unpleasantness with some form of aversion. Disliking, hatred, disappointment, uh, frustration, despair, anxiety, uh, depression. All forms of not dealing with the unpleasant reality that we're living with. Our desire, our wanting, our attachment, our craving is also a deeply conditioned response to experience that we consider pleasant. Something good happens. A good meal, something we like, is offered. And immediately the desire arises to have seconds, even if we don't need it. We feel full. We still have the desire for more. It's not, it's not some personal deficiency of us that makes this happen. This is the way it is. Pleasant experience conditions desire in every one of us. It's not like some have it and some don't. We all have it. Some recognize it and some don't. And therein is the difference between those who are awake 
and suffering less in those who are still asleep or their mind is impure, clouded, and are suffering more. Because these experiences are conditioned, their habits, we've repeated this response so many times it has worn a deep groove in the mind, a familiar groove in the mind. But because we have, or conditions have conditioned this to be a habit, we can uncondition it. And when we are mindful, when we bring attention and awareness to these deep, rooted habits, every moment that we are aware of them, we decondition them a little bit. We weaken the power of that habit to pull us automatically into a state of unhappiness. These hindrances act like filters on the mind. Because they are conditioned, they can be unconditioned through mindfulness. We don't need to judge ourselves for experiencing them. They're not personal. They only become personal if we identify with them, if we claim them, if we own them, if we uh, feel guilty for them. And then we say, ah, this is mine. This is my desire. This is my aversion. This is my sleepiness. When in fact, there really is no ownership of it. It is a natural result of the unfolding of conditions. Sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, craving or attachment, they all arise and fix a sense of who we are. Something happens, we get angry, and we say, I am angry. It's not many of us that say, oh, conditions have constellated uh, anger to arise, and I am aware of it. It's not mine. It's just there. But in fact, that's what's actually happening. Instead, we say, ah, my anger. She said, he said, I said, they said, therefore, I should be, and I am angry. And we repeat that scenario, that storyline, over and over and over and over. The mind is so restless, it just goes over the same old groove again and again and again and again. And before long, we feel really justified in being angry because they are such a jerk or the weather is really bad and I should be angry at it for some reason and the more we repeat that story this restless mind just dwelling in thought and chewing its cud you know <laughs> the more strength that cloud in the mind becomes. 
all of these hindrances, all of these obstructions are rooted in delusion. That means that we're not really seeing clearly what's happening, what's occurring, but we are rather ascribing some significance to it or some personality to it or some, um, some meaning to it that isn't really there in the bare experience, in the bare phenomena that's happening. They're rooted in delusion, not seeing clearly. They're all accompanied by restlessness, this uh, agitated state of mind that just chews it over and over and over and over. Restlessness manifesting as a lot of thinking. And also, all of these hindrances are accompanied by what are called a lack of conscience and a lack of modesty. Meaning, when we are, when our mind is clouded by any of these hindrances, we really lose a sense of what is personally appropriate. Here's an example. When we're angry. In the heat of anger, we can say and do things which later, after the heat of anger has died down, we reflect on and we say, oh boy, that was not the right thing to say or do. I didn't really mean that. Uh, mm, now I've really got myself into a, a pickle and I'm going to have to go back take care of it and whatnot. Why did we say and do those things that we really, deep in our heart, don't hold to be in alignment with who we are. Why? Because we are blinded by aversion. And we have no sense of conscience or modesty. And we'll say and do and act in ways that is outside of our standard of what's appropriate. We are blinded by these states of mind. So because they are rooted in delusion, accompanied by restlessness, and precipitate a lack of conscience and modesty, these four elements give us a clue as to how to work with the hindrances when they arise in our practice. When these filters come over the mind. Initially, we are lost in them. We're just you know, totally caught in our story around whatever, sleepiness, desire, aversion, doubt, confusion, restlessness. When we're lost in those states of mind, we can't do anything about it, period. We don't even know it. And you say, wait a minute, how can I be totally lost in these states of mind? Well, just think back today to one of those sittings where, you know, you sat there, dull, bobbing and nodding and just kind of, you know, just barely able to 
remember that you were even sitting or even trying to meditate or be mindful. What was going on there? Were you fully aware of being sleepy or dull? No. Totally lost in it, absorbed in it. Can't do anything about it until we recognize it. And that's the first place we can begin to work where we contact these conditions and we can begin to work with them. It's a three-step process. Recognition, uh, acceptance through investigation, and as a result of that, disidentification with those states of mind. Notice I said disidentification, not disappearance of those states of mind. We're not trying to get rid of aversion when it arises, or desire when it arises, or any of the hindrances. But our attention needs to be applied with the motivation to understand what's going on, rather than the motivation to get rid of it. Because in the understanding of these states of mind, how they arise, how they distort our perceptions, and how they make us unhappy, in that understanding, we can be free. We can purify the mind, the understanding, and lead a life of happiness. There are many ways to work with all of the hindrances. I won't mention them all. You could write a book about each one, probably. Probably there have been books written. Nevertheless, some examples, some understanding can be helpful in these first days of the retreat. So the first hindrance, the first obstruction, the first distracting state of mind that we often encounter on a retreat is sloth and torpor. In its gross form, sloth and torpor is heaviness, dullness, sleepiness, just an inability to get out of bed. And in its subtle form, it can be uh, a dull gaze, laziness, And laziness can be gross or subtle. We all experience sloth and torpor. It's a heaviness of the mind. The mind just it feels like it's stuck in the mud, smothering all other experience. Have you noticed when sleepiness or dullness is present, how you can't be aware of anything? Not hardly even the dullness itself. It smothers everything. It's like putting a heavy, wet wool blanket over you. You can't move. You can't think. There are 
three sources for our experience of dullness, sleepiness, sloth, and torpor. And the first is, as we often experience in the first days of retreat, a genuine exhaustion. We live lives of overstimulation. And as long as we keep stimulated, we may not recognize that we are mentally exhausted. But when we come on retreat and all forms of stimulation are uh, removed, no reading, no writing, no talking, no, 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 the first thing we notice is how exhausted we are because we're not stimulated. We're not kept. Uh, we're not keep pumping ourselves up with energy. So that kind of genuine exhaustion can only be relieved by rest. Naps, sleeping, not doing, not stimulating oneself. A second form or root for the experience of dullness or sloth and torpor is when some form of resistance to unpleasantness comes to the mind. And in the first few days of retreat, as we start to quiet down and open up, we start to feel unpleasantness in the body. And quite naturally, we don't want to feel it. We don't want to feel the aches and the pains and the stiffness and the you know, all the stuff that we've been running away from. And so dullness and sleepiness comes up to obscure that unpleasant experience. Or when, in practice, um, the mind is opening to painful emotional memories. You know, the argument you had a week ago or ten years ago or whenever it was. And, you know, it's just never been resolved, it's never been settled, and the mind opens up to it, and you feel all that anger come up again, and you say, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I think I'll take a nap. It's not like we even know that we're doing this. It just happens automatically. The conditions. Unpleasant conditions precipitate or condition or provoke a response of shutting down, closing down. And so, quite naturally, we're going to experience dullness, sleepiness, heaviness, resistance to the physical unpleasantness, the mental unpleasantness, the emotional unpleasantness that inevitably comes when we just pay attention. And that's all we're doing here. We're just paying attention, just trying to notice things as they are. The body, the mind, the heart. And sure enough, some of it's unpleasant. And when it comes up, we go, I think I'll take a nap. And when this unpleasantness goes away, I think I'll get up and practice again. We really need a... Uh, it's helpful to have an understanding that unpleasantness is going to be uncovered in practice. Not only unpleasantness, but when unpleasantness is uncovered, the inevitable 
the lawful experience, conditioned experience, is going to be dullness, heaviness, sleepiness. A third form of sleepiness is precipitated when, in practice, the tranquility or the steadiness of mind, the concentration of the mind, becomes too great for the energy of the mind. When there is an imbalance in the concentration and the energy, or when we get too tranquil and not enough energy, we fall into what's called sinking mind. Now these experiences, genuine exhaustion, resistance to unpleasantness, or an imbalance in uh, the energy tranquility or the energy concentration dynamic, any of them, when they precipitate an experience of dullness, sleepiness, lethargy, laziness, the experience that we feel subjectively is the same. And so we might not know, is this due to exhaustion? Is this due to resistance? Is this due to an imbalance in energy concentration? So we have to look carefully. We have to pay very close attention to how we're practicing so that we'll have some idea how to work with these different sources or causes for sleepiness. Again, when we're lost in sleepiness, can't do anything about it. You just sit there and you bob and you nod and there's no awareness. Or sometimes it's not bobbing and nodding, it's just sitting there with a 50-yard gaze. Also a form of dullness, sluggishness of the mind. When we recognize it, when we finally come out of the fog enough to say, wow, I'm really sleepy, I'm really dull, that is a moment of mindfulness, right there. That is something to congratulate yourself for, actually. Most of us might say, oh God, I'm dull and sleepy again, oh jeez, you know. But really, when we become aware of it, that's a moment of mindfulness. We should say, great, now I'm aware of it. Now I can begin to work with it. Because the Buddha said, the, the experience of sleepiness is the very foundation upon which we develop our mindfulness. He didn't say, when you get rid of sleepiness, then you can be mindful. No, he said, when you're sleepy, that is the very place to establish your mindfulness. By recognizing it. Kamala and I have been suggesting and maybe even strongly encouraging you to label it, to note it, to label it. Why do we say, why do we suggest that you label your experience, that you note it? In order to note any experience, you have to recognize it. In order to put a label on it, you have to, rec- you have to identify, this is sleepiness. 
you're not absorbed in it. You're not just absorbed and lost in it, enmeshed in it, but you've actually pulled out of it a little bit and are able to look at it and say, this is sleepiness. And when you put that label on that experience, when you recognize it, when you identify it, when you perceive it as it is, then you have begun to create some space around it, a little bit of distance so that you're not so lost and so uh, identified with it. There's just a little bit of uh, awareness of sleepiness. That perception is one of the conditions prolonging or deepening mindfulness. The ability to recognize what's going on. So noting conditions continuity of mindfulness. It's, a, it's work, believe me, I know, putting a label on and identifying what our experience is, but it is the key, or one of the keys, to strengthening the continuity of mindfulness. If you use it, you'll see that you can be more continuously aware when you are clearly identifying what's happening. We recognize it. And this may be the most painful part of practice. When we become aware of how unpleasant our experience is, how unhappy this sleepiness or any of the hindrances is making us feel. Because just because we become aware of it doesn't mean that it automatically goes away. And so the awareness is initially of, I'm sleepy. I'm sleepy. Collapse. I'm sleep. Collapsing. I'm sleep. Collapsing. And, and sometimes that's the way we deal with it. We just note it, fall into it. Note it, fall into it. Note it, fall into it. And any of you who've, who've done much practice, I'm sure, have had the experience where you're just persistently, doggedly just saying, sleepiness, 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 sleepiness. <laughs> and on one of those notes, sleepiness, wide awake. It's not like it gradually goes away. It's not like you've got rid of it. It's just suddenly conditions have changed. You've recognized it. Boom, wide awake. And it can happen. We can't make it happen, but we can recognize it when it does happen if we're there for it. But sometimes we're there, we're aware of it, we're aware that we're dull, we're aware that we're sleepy. How do we work with this? There are a number of physical things to do. Sit up a little straighter, open your eyes, pull your earlobes, direct your attention to hearing, look at the light, walk faster during walking practice, do a little um, energetic movement, qigong, tai chi, something like that. Take a cold shower. These are all physical manipulations to address the symptoms of sleepiness, dullness. We can replace sleepiness and dullness with um, something a little more active. You may have noticed sometimes when you're kind of lost in a reverie, in a daydream, and just kind of 
on and on and on and on, that what comes to mind is uh, the chanting of the refuges or precepts or the metta. And suddenly you find yourself, <laughs> hey, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. At least you're not dwelling in self-judgment, thoughts, totally enmeshed in your stuff. These, are con- these chanting are concentration practices. And when you are aware of them and chanting them, you're not lost in the clasis, the torments of the mind. And so they kind of plant seeds and little reminders so that eh, instead of sitting there ruminating on some old hurt, you're ruminating on metta. (laughs) And it pulls you out. We can replace sleepiness with chanting or silently, of course. I don't want anybody in (laughs) the middle of a sitting just that. (laughs) That wouldn't be good. Not all of us are sleepy at the same time. Sometimes just when we become aware of dullness and lethargy or laziness, maybe more often when we really feel just lazy and, you know, I, I don't think I'll do this walking. I think I'll go lay down. <laughs> I won't fall asleep. I'm going to practice lying down. <laughs> Isn't that a favorite trick of all of us? I mean, <laughs> that's why we gave you all roommates. <laughs> Can't get away with it. So... But sometimes just re-reflecting on what are we doing here? Did we come here just to take a month-long nap? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) There are better uses for our time. It's difficult to, to get the opportunity, really. I mean, I'm sure you all know how rare the opportunity is to to practice or to have a month or to have a day when you have the resources when you have people to support you cooks and managers and teachers and other yogis and to have a place that's reasonably accommodating and so just to reflect on the innumerable conditions and the support and the rarity of the can sometimes arouse a sense of, okay, let me use my time wisely. Or to remember some of the stories of other teachers or the Buddha himself or Milarepa, and they too had to deal with sleepiness. It's not only you, or it's not only me. Anyone who is awake or awakening or on the path of awakening has to deal with sleepiness. When we can arouse a sense of urgency, when we can remember how precious and short this life is, and see the work that really needs to be done to purify our mind, to actually be free, and it is possible, 
then we can really recommit to use our time wisely and not just take the path of comfort. Arousing a sense of urgency, sometimes through reflection, sometimes conditions. I was practicing in Thailand one time. I was in the forest over near the Kempuchea border. And at this monastery, it was in a very poor village, and when we would go for alms round in the morning, we would get sticky rice, which is very heavy, tapioca, which they grew there, also very heavy, and ground up meat. And that was about it, every day at 6.30 in the morning. And we would have one meal, we'd eat at 8 o'clock in the morning, and that'd be it. 24 hours later, you could do it again. And so I would eat a lot just to help me get through 24 hours. And because I ate a lot, I inevitably would be very sleepy afterwards. Overeating, of course, causes sleepiness, so you might watch how much you eat. And because I was sleepy and didn't want to just nap for a couple of hours while I digested my food, I would stand, I would do standing meditation for two or three hours. And because the sun was up and it was getting hot, I would stand in the shadow of my cabin, my cootie. And my cootie was up on stilts, because there's a lot of creepy crawlies in the jungle, and you go up on stilts so that you don't have co-tenants. So I was standing, and I would stand in the shadow of my cootie. However, in the shadow of my cootie is where all the flies lived. So a monk's robe comes to about the middle of their shin, or their calf, and from there down to their feet is bare, and that's where the flies like to play. So I would hold a little towel, a little dishwashing towel, dishwiping towel in my hand, and I would be standing there, standing, standing, noting, left, right, standing, left, right, hearing, standing, thinking, standing, and then when the flies would get too thick, I would just flick this uh, cloth like a horsetail and brush them off my feet. Okay, standing, standing, flick, flick, standing, standing, flick, flick, and, and I would get a few seconds of relief. And one time I was standing there and I felt something on my foot and it didn't feel like a fly. So I opened my eyes and looked down and there was a snake about four feet long crawling over my feet. Needless to say, I moved quickly. And I was not sleepy for the rest of the morning. <laughs> Amazing thing. You know, you can really get a sense of urgency to stay awake when there's a snake in the room. I think I saw one here earlier today. So, arousing a sense of urgency can be really helpful in dealing with sleepiness. All of these ways of dealing with, working with sleepiness, they work if you persist, but it takes a recognition, it takes a, uh, an acceptance, an opening to, 
and actually being with the experience. The insightful way of dealing with sleepiness is to feel it. What does it feel like? Where is it in the body? What happens to it when you pay attention to it? What is the quality of thought that comes with sleepiness? You know, there's this pleasant, drifty, dreamy, heavy, heaviness in the body. Sometimes it's really comfortable. Just kind of sinking into this quiet, still numbness. (laughs) But if we arouse our curiosity, if we say, I want to know what this is. What is this experience? We call it sleepiness. But what is it really? If we arouse that curiosity to know things as they are, we can take our mindfulness and our mindful awareness into the experience of sleepiness and not be caught by it, not be blindsided by it, not be, uh, not let the clarity of our mind be obscured by it. But it takes a real diligence. It takes a real persistence. It takes an extraordinary desire to know things clearly and to not just buy into. I'm sleepy, I think I'll take a nap. But to say, I'm sleepy, I think I'll find out what's really going on here. When we recognize it, note it, open to it, accept it, we can begin to see that it is a matrix of sensations and thoughts and feelings and it's just kind of unfolding. And each of those composite pieces or elements of this experience of sleepiness is impermanent. It doesn't last. It's very unpleasant. And it's not ours. The experience of sleepiness is subject to the three universal characteristics, anicca, anatta, and dukkha. Anicca being impermanent, anatta being the impersonality of it, and dukkha being the unpleasantness of it. And if we look carefully at this experience of sleepiness, we will discover its individual characteristics, the heaviness, the dullness, the pleasant comfort, and we'll also discover the universal characteristics of it, its impermanence, its unsatisfactory uh, nature, and its impersonality. And when we see clearly these elements of this condition, sleepiness, we're no longer caught by it. The mind is no longer clouded, confused. We no longer act it out, but we see things clearly. We have established mindfulness. We have established freedom. We have established clarity. We haven't tried to get rid of it. We've accepted it. We've opened to it. We've looked at it. We've seen it. We've discovered it. We've investigated it. And we've known it clearly. Sleepiness, dullness, sloth and torpor is the first hindrance which we all have to deal with. Remember, it's not through any personal fault or limitation or deficiency that you experience sleepiness or dullness. This is the way things are. These are the conditions that exist in life. But 
we can work with them. We can decondition the habit of numbing out. But it takes us a, a strong willingness and a persistent engagement to do it. The second hindrance, obstruction to the mind, or the filter over the mind, which causes us no end of difficulty in, in practice, is doubt. There are many ways that we experience doubt. Should I be here on this retreat? Is this the kind of retreat I should be doing? Uh, do I believe these guys? Uh, am I really capable of doing 30 days? Uh, and many other forms. But these are, these are familiar manifestations of doubt, some of which you have reported in your in your interviews. When such questions arise in the mind, the first thing we do is stop practicing and say, okay, I've got to figure this out. After I figure it out, then I'll know whether I'm going to practice or not. <laughs> Wrong. The Buddha again said, when you experience doubt, this is the very place this is the very experience upon which to establish and develop mindfulness. He didn't say, when you experience doubt, first get rid of it and then try to be mindful. That's not it. Doubt arises because we don't yet know confidently the way to freedom. If we did, we would be on the path. We would stay on the path. We wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't backslide. We wouldn't doubt. We wouldn't question. We wouldn't speculate. We wouldn't uh, have any doubt about what we're doing, where we're doing, why we're doing, when we're doing, who we're doing it with. But because we are not yet, or have not yet verified for ourselves the path of practice, the way to freedom, the way to happiness, then we waver. You know, we consider this and we speculate on that and we imagine this and, you know, we waffle and wander and we go around in circles a lot. The nature of doubt is, of course, a certain indecision, a certain edginess, often a lot of restlessness, wavering, a feeling of unsteadiness in the mind and often reflected in the body. Wandering instead of walking meditation. Anybody been doing any wandering meditation? <laughs> Look at the state of mind that precipitates wandering. What is it? What is that quality of mind that allows us to just walk out this door, walk up to the toilet, go into a room, shuffle around a few clothes and brush our teeth, and wander back and get a cup of tea and wander out to sit there, but 
it's a, it's a little damp out there. I think I'll go out here. Dean, I'll go wash the cup and uh, go to the toilet. And hey, it's time to go sit again. Indecision. Never really made the decision to practice. Never really made the decision to do 45 minutes or an hour of walking. Doubt is in the mind. Doubt is present. Now, when we're lost in it, when we don't recognize it, we will act it out. When we don't recognize any of the hindrances, we act them out. We get angry, we get restless, we get, you know, whatever it is. And we, we just blindly try to satisfy that mental state. The doubtful mental state just wanders and waffles and wavers and, and just keeps agitated and moving. And so the body will keep agitated and moving. When we recognize it, then we can begin to work with it. Again, it is extraordinarily helpful to just note it, to just put a label on it and say, this experience is doubt. Because in that, we begin to step back from it. We begin to not be so lost, not be so caught in it, not be so identified with it. And we begin to, to kind of put it out here and say, oh, here is this impersonal condition, experience, that comes due to its own conditions. When we're lost in it, can't do anything about it. When we recognize it, then we can. And sometimes our doubt is a genuine doubt of how do you do this, or, or why should we be doing this, or can I do this? And we give you a couple of times a day maybe to ask questions, to, 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 to have that level of doubt answered, clarified, if possible. But there's a deeper level of doubt that is inevitably uncovered in practice. And that is the doubt where am I going? And do I really want to do this? Or can I do this? And that doubt, can I do this? Can I wake up? Can I be mindful? Can I, you know, uh, attain Buddhahood or whatever you want to call it? That doubt cannot be answered by anything less than practice. There's no book, no teacher, no answer to the question, no amount of speculation, no amount of sampling workshops or different teachers is going to answer that question affirmatively with confidence. So we're going to uncover this level of doubt in practice. We have to. It's inevitable that we're going to come upon the experience of extraordinary indecision. And the only way through it, the only way to get past that level of doubt is to note it. And an interesting thing happens when you can actually step back enough to note doubt being present. You realize then that you don't have to answer the question 
that you're concerned with. You don't have to say, yes, it's true, or no, it isn't. You just have to recognize doubt is present. And if you do, if you recognize it, if you open to it, and you actually feel it, and you see it, okay, doubt's present. Let me keep practicing. What does it feel like in the body? Where is it? Track it. What kind of thoughts come? Notice them. What you will see is that doubt, too, is a conditioned cloud in the mind, which is impermanent, impersonal, and very unpleasant. And when you get that degree of clarity through that amount of curiosity, then you're no longer caught in it. You're no longer identified with it. It may come, but you recognize it. You're not lost in it. You're not enmeshed in it. And therein is the freedom. That's the place of disidentified presence of mind, where you can actually see, ah, doubt. Mm -hmm. I see it. I'm not caught in it. It's not who I am. I don't have to own it. I just have to see, oh, this this is the way it is right now. When our practice, when our being here on retreat and and sitting and walking is done with a lot of expectation, anticipation, hope, those expectations, those anticipations, those hopes contaminate our confidence because they will inevitably condition doubt. When our expectations aren't met, when our anticipations aren't met, when our hopes don't, aren't fulfilled, uh, we'll feel doubt, fear that they won't be fulfilled, uh, depression, despair, and we'll unplug from practice. So a large part of practice, initial part of practice, is to expose all of our hopes, expose all of our expectations, expose all of our anticipations, and to put them aside and say, okay, wait a minute, I don't have to expect anything for these 28 days of practice. I just have to be here. If we have any expectation, it's going to cause us suffering. If we have any hope, about getting something out of these 28 days, we're going to suffer. But we have to expose them. And it's hard to, it's difficult to see, geez, I hope I get something. I hope I get at least calm. Or I hope I have some static, some clarity. Or I hope I have some energy. Or, you know, I expect to be enlightened. You know, (laughs) we can really be deluded. (laughs) But, and so, It's painful to expose our hopes and our expectations and let go of them. To just say, wait a minute, I don't need that. Because it drops us into the present moment. Boom, right here, right now, that's it. Not wishing for anything else. That's hard. But that's freedom. To be here, now, present without any anticipation or any hope for the future. Free to experience this moment just as it is. 
without any precondition, without any agenda. I've only talked about two of the hindrances. Tomorrow I'll talk about the remaining. But remember I started this talk with the Buddha's verse. The mind is the forerunner of all experience. The mind is chief. When with an impure mind one acts or speaks, then unhappiness follows. And with, when with a pure mind one acts or speaks, happiness follows. We're looking at, in trying to discover the nature of the pure and the impure mind. The mind in and of itself is, is neither pure nor impure. It's just what it is. But when the clouds and the obstructions and the hindrances come, we don't see clearly. We can say our vision is contaminated. Our mind is impure. Huang Po was a Chinese Zen master back in the ninth uh, century. Extraordinarily clear and lucid. He said, This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. Your true nature is not lost in moments of delusion, nor is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. It was never born and can never die. It shines through the whole universe, filling emptiness at one with emptiness. It is without time or space and has no passions, actions, ignorance, or knowledge. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.